You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. This morning's scripture is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Sharon. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, turn our attention to this passage. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come now to your word as a people who are in many ways lost and aimlessly wandering. And when we think we've made sense of your world, we find ourselves often confused and frustrated and perplexed. For your ways are much greater than ours and much more complicated than we can ever comprehend. And so we pray even this morning that you would open our eyes to understand you from your word, and that in your word we would see both our need and the availability of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and his gospel would become hope for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you remember uh, the film that was released in the late 90s, Liar, Liar. It features that uh, wonderful actor, Canadian export, Jim Carrey. Um, the movie's about a lawyer named Fletcher Reed, played by Carrey. Uh, he's a hotshot lawyer who's quite successful in his career. And uh, the only problem is that he's a compulsive liar. And this, this problem with lying isn't really a problem for Fletcher for the most part in his professional life. Sorry, lawyers. But he's actually able to make quite a bit of money uh, as, as a very, very good compulsive liar. The problem is that he's unable to firewall his professional life from his personal life. And he's always breaking promises and lying to the people in his life. You learn that his marriage has fallen apart. And he has a son named Max. You may remember as the story goes, if you haven't seen it, it's like over 30 years, it's like 20 some odd years old, so spoiler alert, but it's a bit late. Um, his son Max is, is at his, I believe it's his sixth birthday party, fifth birthday party, and in traditional fashion, his mom tells him to make a wish. And as he's about ready to blow out the candles, he remembers that his father said that he would not miss the party for the world. He remembered that his father said he will certainly be there. And yet, Jim Carrey's character is not at the birthday party, and so Max wishes that his dad would never tell another lie. And you may remember, for the next 24 hours, Jim Carrey's character is unable to lie. And at least as I've read, uh, the movie can, you know, had a ton of uh, Carrey's improv and his inability to lie, you know, making such a big scene and so much theatrics about it that the, the other actors couldn't help but laugh constantly, and there was constant, it took forever to film this. Uh, maybe the most memorable scene, there's some inappropriate scenes, but one of the most memorable scenes is when he's pulled over by the cop uh, after he's been speeding and sort of driving erratically through traffic. And the police officer pulls him over and says, do you know why I pulled you over? And Carrie's character knows that he can't lie, and he's, his brain is turning, and he says, it depends on how long you've been following me. And then he proceeds, you know, to share, thanks Amanda, and he proceeds to, you know, share a list of, of traffic violations that in his own mind 
uh, he knows that he's committed since he got into the car. He's unable to lie, and despite the fact that he knows keeping his mouth shuts in his best interest, he proceeds to completely tell the truth. Now, why do I share this? To get a laugh out of Amanda, of course, but also, um, you know, I actually thought the movie had an element to it. I haven't seen it in a while, but the movie had an element to it that actually is quite thought-provoking. And it's this, that um, lying and deception, you know, we might be able to make a commitment to say, I'm not going to tell an outright lie for 24 hours and work really hard at it. And that, that's probably feasible. Um, but lying and deception is actually very much baked into ordinary convention of how we use language. And it's, it's baked into our ordinary interactions. It's, it's easy to make fun of lawyers and, and call them compulsive liars. But it's harder to realize that so much, many of our figures of speech and so much of what we do actually is given to create and, and give some kind of deception. And to really weed deception out of your life. To be a person who is absolutely truthful in all your interactions, to be a person who's, who's, who has full integrity. This isn't something that you can kind of, uh, you know, commit to doing and very easily um, sort of go on to autopilot and do. This is something that takes unbelievable work. And it takes unbelievable reflection. I mean, this is what's interesting about Liar Liar is that as you hear him, uh, you know, begin to tell a lie and have to turn it back into the truth, you realize, oh my goodness, like, was that actually a lie? You have to actually think about what does it mean to lie? What does it mean to be deceitful? What does it mean to be untruthful? This thing called telling the truth should be straightforward. It should be easy. But it's not. It's complicated. It's, it's very, very hard in our conventional culture. And this is part of what I think is so brilliant about this movie. Listen, we've been looking at this sermon of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in, in this particular sermon, this is maybe Jesus' most famous sermon, what he's doing is he's telling his people that they have misunderstood the law that God had given to his people, the Jewish people in times of old. That rather than seeing this law as sort of a guidebook or a path towards flourishing, towards the human, you know, sort of human good, they saw this as a, 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 a set of restrictions, as a set of hoops to jump through and jump over. And they saw this, the law, as something burdensome, but also something they could use as a tool to essentially do whatever they want and to feel righteous about it, to feel like they are in the good. What Jesus is calling out is what a lot of you experience if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. He is going after religious hypocrisy. And he's saying, you people who claim to know the, creators of the, the creator of the heaven and the earth, this very law that was meant for your good, for your flourishing, you are simply using this as an obstacle to get around, and you're feeling good about yourself as you do it. Last week, Lyndon looked at uh, lust and divorce, and where these laws were created to protect sexuality, where they were created to protect marriage, to, to allow human life to flourish. God's people had used these laws, and they said, okay, here's the boundaries around divorce. Aha. Well, when I want an upgrade... When I want to get away, get, be done with my wife when she's driving me nuts. These laws then become for us a way in which a guidebook, a playbook, by which we can get rid of our spouse and still feel as though we're righteous. This, this is, in general, how God's people had begun to use the law. It's, in general, an instinct we all have as it relates to using God's law. We find loopholes so we can feel good about doing whatever we wanted to do anyway. And Jesus, in this first sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is going right after it. And he's giving these statements. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I've said to you. This is the fourth time he's done that. And he's saying, in, the, in this world, conventional wisdom says X, but in this kingdom, where I'm the king, 
Where I'm the boss, where I'm the one in charge, where I'm the one calling the shots, where I'm the one telling you what the good life looks like. Here's what I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And this morning, Jesus is going to say, in a world of deception, his kingdom is a place where deception is unthinkable. Okay? In a world of deception, Jesus' kingdom is a place where deception becomes unthinkable. What I want to do this morning first is I want to make a case. I don't think it'll be hard, but I want to make a case for you that this reality of deceit is a bigger problem than just telling fibs. Then I want to look at the reason. I want to maybe uh, unpack what the Bible would say, the reason uh, behind the deceit that is so common to our experience of human life. And then finally, maybe look at the remedy. So the reality, the reason, and the remedy for deceit. So first, let's look at the reality of deceit. What is, you know, what, where does this passage even talk about deceit? Well, if you look closely at your bulletin, you'll notice the word deceit is not found there. But in verse 33, we, we read that Jesus speaks about swearing falsely. And in verses 34 through 36, Jesus talks about taking oaths. And these were, what Jesus is talking about is the reality of deceit as it encroaches into ordinary human interactions. Now, in, elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in Jesus' ministry, he's going to say, it is written, and then he's going to quote an Old Testament law. Here, what he says is, you've heard it said, and he's actually not quoting any particular Old Testament law, but he's quoting conventional wisdom that had come up around the laws of writing oaths. He's not perfectly quoting one piece of scripture, but he's citing sort of verses like Leviticus 19.12, don't swear falsely by the name of God, or Deuteronomy 23, 21-29, which says, if you make a vow before God, if you commit to doing something before God, be quick to repay your vow. If not, it would be better to not make a vow. Really, what what Jesus is citing is the way God's people have been interacting with the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witnesses. Do not bear false witness. And Jesus is, is, is dealing with a contemporary interpretation of these things in this passage. Now, in our culture, when we talk about uh, taking oaths, we wouldn't do that as common. What would we do? We would, we would have contracts, right? This is why you have contracts often signed maybe by a witness. Uh, the written word is of utmost value in our culture. But in this particular culture... In a primarily oral culture, literacy levels not as high, due to the weakness and the imprecision that can come with language, there became a time and a place, especially where there was a lack of trust in relationships, say you're trying to make a business deal with someone who you don't count as a friend, you have no trust with this person, that you would make an oath. You would slow down and you would say, it is possible that because of the imprecision of language I could be misleading, or because of the weakness of language, I could be imprecise. However, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to call upon a witness of my God, and also other witnesses would come, and I'm going to make an oath. I'm going to essentially say, I swear to God, I will pay you X number of dollars for your land, let's say. And rather than signing a contract as we would do today, you would call together witnesses, respectable people in society, people who respected you and people who respected the other people. You would make this oath before God, and this would be binding as a contract. Now, again, this was for high-stakes interaction and times where there was lack of trust in relationships. It wasn't like if you could morph back, you know, uh, 2,000 years in history, if someone asks you, uh, you know, do you want to go to lunch, it wouldn't be like you'd call together friends and say, I swear before God, you know, I will go to lunch with you. These were for high-stakes interaction. These were convention to make sure the truth was protected, to make sure there was trust available. Think of contracts. Now, during the time of Jesus, 
an elaborate system, almost a game had developed around these oaths, which was that taking an oath by certain objects was more serious than other objects, okay? So Jesus has said very clearly, don't, or God had said to his people very clearly, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, he had said, don't take my name in vain. And so what happened is God's people said, aha, so we're not to take God's name in vain, and we're instructed about how oaths are to look in society. So this must mean that there's a sort of a sliding scale with which uh, you have to be truthful. There's a, there's a game that could be played in a sense in which uh, you're allowed to deceive. And so elaborate, elaborate laws were created. And we'll read about this later in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 23, that it was not binding if you swore an oath towards the temple, but if you swore an oath on the gold of the temple, that was, that was binding. That was binding in a different way. And so there became a, a scale of these things. It's very hard for me to explain to you as it relates to our contract culture. But what ended up happening was there was this whole game called causistry as to how you could essentially deceive somebody and still be righteous. This was what is going on. In a sense, this is sort of like when you're with your kids. I don't know if anyone else's kids, are, you know, go through this, but they tell you something like, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to go to bed. And you find out they didn't go to bed, and they say, oh, well, I have my fingers crossed. As though somehow this they sort of nullifies their, their promise, you know. Uh, that's a very childish way of describing exactly what was going on. Is that God's people, especially the ones that wanted to be perceived as righteous, had developed a whole game by which they could deceive and they could lie to people. And so this is why Jesus says certain things by their swearing by the hair on their head or they're swearing by the, the earth or they're swearing by the temple. You could, you could change the object with which you're swearing towards and that then changed your obligation towards telling the truth. I hope that makes some sense. Now, now, why does this develop? Well, listen, this is no different from you and me. When we are confronted by the fact that we are created beings and we're confronted that there is a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live, when this comes, one of two things has to happen. When we realize we, we cannot live up to this right way to live, which is what happens in a world filled with deceit, it's not like fake news is some new development, a world filled with deceit, when we realize that it's very, very hard to always be truthful, and we realize these instructions from our Creator, these teachings from our Creator, we realize they're good and we realize we fail at them, we have to do one of two things. We either have to become indifferent, which I think by and large is the approach our culture has taken to many of, of the ethical commands you'd find in the Bible or the ethical commands you even find in your hearts, is you, you try to become indifferent to it and say, well, I failed, but we all fail, who cares? Or you assume that the way God judges these things is sort of related to how you compare to the rest of the class, that God grades on a curve, okay? And what had become incredibly common during this time is this assumption that God is going to grade on a curve. And so though I you know, the pastor of this church, might not be perfectly honest. What was important is that I was more honest than the other people around me, okay? So that when God looked down from earth, okay, we're all failures at this thing called being, you know, perfectly truthful. However, so long as we're better than others, we must be righteous. And this is the game God's people started to play. And so they made these rules by which they assumed God would then be grading them. If you swore by your hair of your head, that wasn't that serious because your hair could fall off if you're a man. And, um, you know, th th this wasn't as binding as swearing by the, the temple. And what Jesus is coming into this world is, and in, in what he is saying uh, to his people is that whether you generally accept deceit as a convention of this world and you cave and you give into it, or you make rules and act like your deceit is not that okay and that somehow you're a righteous deceiver, 
that there is a major, major problem on our hands. That this is a world of deceit, and it's also a world where we know that truth matters. It's a world of deceit, and it's, it's a world where we don't like being lied to. No one likes being lied to. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and he says, in my kingdom, it will not be like this. What am I trying to argue? I want you to wrestle through and think not just the reality of you taking contracts, signing on the dotted line, and not living up to the obligation, but the ways in which your ordinary language portrays a measure of deceit on a regular basis. Let me tell you a figure of speech to listen for this week. I guarantee you'll hear it. Someone will be talking to you. You might even find yourself talking. And you'll ask them a question, and they'll say, well, I'll be honest with you. And then they'll give you an answer. Whenever you hear that figure of speech, you should stop them and say, you know what? That's not necessary. You don't have to be honest with me. Just go ahead and throw a lie my way, you know? <laughs> uh, why, why do we say this, I'll be honest with you? Assuming that we weren't honest previously? Our intentions normally aren't to be honest? Yes, in a very real sense, when we say that, we're saying, I'll be more precise with you than I ordinarily am. I'll tell you to greater detail than I ordinarily want to reveal. What am I trying to say is this. If you were to wear a recording device around you, you know, if TikTok is actually listening to us at all times on your phone, <laughs> you and I would know a replay of our past week would be filled with moments and times couched in deceit, okay? Sometimes small things like, if someone asks to go to lunch and you say, you know what, I'd love to, but I'm actually busy. You might actually be busy, but you really didn't love to, you wouldn't love to go. You actually didn't want to go and you were thrilled to find that you were busy, okay? Ordinary deceit gets couched into our language and we become accepting, accepting of it. We, we say, this is permissible, this is okay for me. And yet, when people are not honest with us, when people deceive us, we don't like it. And Jesus is saying the Christian community, the community that bears his name, they will be people marked by a devotion and a precision to truth. They will not justify deception. You should not hear them say, I'll be honest with you. They should be known as always being honest. Obviously couched in love. You know, this doesn't mean you share everything that you have to share. If someone asks how they look in something, you don't have to tell them exactly how bad they look. You can just tell them. It's not, it's not the best on them, you know. <laughs> That was supposed to be funny. People are hurting. <laughs> God's people, the people that follow after Christ, that correctly understand this law, are people who have a growing uncomfortableness with deceit, and they do not accept the status quo, this deceit that is baked into our world. This is what Jesus is going after with this, with this teaching about oaths. Ours is a world of deceit, and Jesus wants you first to see and to acknowledge that. But now let's ask, what's the reason for this deceit? We must ask why. Why is deceit so baked into our language? If we all value telling the truth, if this is a priority for all of us, if we say the world is a better place when people are always truthful, why is deceit so socially acceptable? And we see something of this at the ending. In verse 37, Jesus says, let your, let, when you speak, let it be a simple yes or a no. And then what does he say? Anything more than this comes from what? From evil. Now, translators are at a loss as to what to do. If you're reading uh, the Greek New Testament, you would know that there's an article in front of evil. So anything beyond yes or no comes from the evil. And it is very possible that this could be a reference to the evil one. This comes from Satan. It could be intentionally vague to say this comes from evil generally as well. So what is the ultimate cause of deceit, which shows itself and manifests itself so clearly in this way that oaths were taken in this time, but shows itself in our culture with our various phrases and figure of speech where we mislead others? What is the ultimate source? Jesus is saying it comes from evil. 
Now, I don't know how, I know not everyone in here is familiar with the story of the Bible. Some people, this is their first time ever being in a church, I already heard. But the story of the Bible begins with God creating a world that's blessed, as Pastor Lyndon spoke of, a world that is good, that is filled with a potential for flourishing, opportunity, a world in which there was no need to deceive, a world in which uh, the truth was always the best course. But in the very first chapters of the creation of our world, we get it in, in the first chapters of our Bible, and some mysterious story sort of told to us as, as this ancient tale, which we know to be true, though we don't fully understand the details of it. There was a rebellious angelic being who deceived our first parents. This rebellious angelic being used words, used words of deception to deceive our first parents into joining into a coup, to being part of a rebellion against God and against his ways. And because of the work of this evil one, what immediately happens to our first parent? They seek after something that wasn't properly theirs, what was called this knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They desire it for themselves on their own timeline. They don't believe that God has their best interest in mind. They're deceived by this evil angelic being. And they participate in this rebellion, and they now, being deceived people, become people who must deceive. Almost immediately, they have an interaction with their creator. God comes and he's, he's among them, and they find themselves hiding. When God says, where are you? Why are you hiding? They said, well, we realized we were naked and we needed to hide. And this is the moment in which our whole world history ha has undergone a drastic change. We are now a people who must hide. We have to hide for self-protection, and we have to hide uh, because we don't like the people we've become. We could say self-protection and self-promotion. So deceit is now baked into our world because we're a people who were deceived. And this brought great consequences on our world. We're kicked out. The, the world that's supposed to be filled with potential, it was supposed to come to us at scale, was dumped upon us in an aggressive way, and now we found ourselves buried, overwhelmed in a world where we are insecure, we are scared, and we, we hate the people we've, we're starting to become. And so we use our words to deceive. The reason we deceive is because we have to hide. We have to protect ourselves. Being exposed, being vulnerable is a scary, scary prospect. It's a dangerous world out there. We do not want to suffer, so we have to protect ourselves with our world. We don't like the people we become, the failures in which we embody, and so we use our words to promote ourselves. And this is, this is why we deceive, and we deceive over and over and over again. We have to hide. We assume deception is in our best interest. You know, just this week I read a study that came out of, uh, it actually came out on Tuesday from a Canadian research company about uh, Canadians and telling the truth. I didn't commission the study, I promise. It would have been too expensive. Um, but in this study, it said nearly half of Canadians, nearly half of Canadians believe it is permissible to lie for the sake of preserving a relationship. Nearly half of Canadians say, well, if you had an affair and you don't intend to keep it up, <laughs> you know, it's permissible to lie for the sake of preserving this marriage. If it was just a slip-up, why tell the truth? You know, this is, this is the prime example. We, we deceive and lie because we are scared of who we are. We're scared of who we're becoming, and we're scared of the consequences of it. It's baked into all of our interactions. I don't know if anyone else has been following this U.S. politician, George Santos. He is an unbelievable liar. I mean, he can't stop lying. Every day they find new lies that he, his campaign was run on. Uh, he talked about having relatives in the Holocaust and said he was Jewish, and it turns out he doesn't have a drop of Jewish blood in his body. And when confronted, rather than just saying, I'm a liar, he said, oh, I said I was Jew-ish. Like, I like Jew-ish culture. You know, this guy, <laughs> he's, he cannot, thanks again, Amanda, this, 
I'll pay you later. Uh, he, he can't stop. Uh, he, he, he is addicted to lying. He's addicted to deceiving. Why? Because he doesn't like the person he is. He, he doesn't like the ordinariness of his life. He doesn't like what's going on. And he, he wants promotion. And he found a way to do it. He made his way to U.S. Congress. He doesn't like the consequences of the life decisions he had made in his past. So he lies to protect himself. This is the reason for deceit. This is the reason why you and I not only tell outright lies, but also embellish stories. Because we're, the world that God has given us, we, we believe we deserve a much more exciting world with much more fun, much more grandeur. And when it's incredibly ordinary, we lie to self-promote. And the reason we lie is because we know our words and our actions have hurt people. And for the sake of self-protection, we know we have to lie. We have to deceive. We have to mislead. No, not outright lies. But we certainly don't want to go near to the truth. What is the reason for deceit? Ultimately, this. This is what I'm trying to argue in a long-winded way. The reason for deceit is that we don't believe we're living under the watchful eye of a God who sees all things. And even when we do believe we're under his watchful eye, we're more scared of what other people think of us. We're more scared of the people we're becoming than we are scared of what the Lord might think of our particular actions. This is the reason for deceit. And Jesus' point is this. This is why he says, whether you swear by the hair of your head or the temple in Jerusalem or by the earth, it doesn't matter what you say. It's all done under the watchful eye of God. And he is not okay with any of it. He, he, he is incapable of lying. He's a God who is the truth. It's all under his, under his watchful eye. And all of your words used for self-protection and your words used for self-promotion, they will all be held to account before God. You can't compartmentalize God. You can't use your words to get out of trouble. The Lord sees and the Lord knows. This is the reason for deceit. But let's end by talking about the remedy. So the reality is we live in a world where deceit is, is present, not just in contracts, people breaking the word in contracts, but in ordinary convention, deceit is part of our life. And the reason for that is we, we've lost grasp that we live under the watchful eye of God. So we think we can swear by the temple or swear by the earth or swear by our hair. We think it's permissible to mislead and deceive for the sake of preserving relationships. We think these things are acceptable because we want to self-protect and self-promote. We fear what others think of us. People are bigger than God is in our life. But now what's the remedy for this? We're all bent towards deceit. What's our hope? Well, if it was by words that our world came into under a curse, if it was by the words of, a, of the evil one deceiving our first parents, and if it was by words this mess of sin that our first parents got us into has only been compounded and made worse and worse and worse, and if it's by words, in fact, false testimony, that Jesus, the one who is giving this sermon, is going to be deemed, you know, eligible, required to experience the death penalty. If it's, it's by oaths taken by deceive, uh, dece people willing to be deceptive that Jesus will end up on the path towards capital punishment. By false testimony, he will be deemed worthy of the death penalty. If it's by deception that this mess gets to a place where the one who is teaching us this teaching this morning finds himself hanging and dying on a cross, then we shouldn't be surprised. In a world in which we're trapped in deceitful lies of our making, in world, we're a world in which deceitful words kill the savior of our world, it's words on a cross that become for us the truest and most hope-filled words of our universe. 
it is finished. Never has a more truthful word been said on the cross than when Jesus, as he bears false testimony against him, as he is convicted and in sentence to being crucified on a cross, there we find that though those false words put him on the cross, this cross accomplishes and gives to him the power to say words which no other words can undo, words which are so true. Our Lord Jesus can't flatter you. He's not capable of flattering you, and he can't deceive you. When he says on the cross, it is finished by his very word, salvation is accomplished, is brought forth into this world. And the same God who swore to his people in times of old, I will be your God, you will be your people, by the very work of Christ on the cross, is able to say your sins are completely and fully now forgiven. You can come and be part of my people. You see, what I'm trying to say is this, is in a world of deceit, in a world of fake news, in a world of deception, but in a world where everyone wants to hear the truth, the good news of the gospel is this, that you are incredibly deceived. And your sins are such that you have self-deceived yourself into believing you're not as bad as you think you are. Your rebellion against God is compounding like, a, like bad credit card debt to the problem where you are so underwater. And the more you think you can dig yourself out, the more you have to create more self-deception, which only buries you deeper and deeper and deeper. You are a person who can't keep your word. If God were to look down upon just what you did this past week and hold you to account for the words you spoke just this last week, if there's a creator of this world, and I'm convinced there is, you and I both know you would be in trouble. For his is a world in which truth ought to flourish. You don't deceive his people. You don't deceive his other creation. And you and I both know you've participated and done these sorts of things. But if the gospel is harsh words, it's also words of great promise, words of great comfort, that in Jesus Christ, every sin... Every deceitful word, every deceitful thought, every action, all of these things can be undone. Friends, what Jesus is saying is this. He has come to bring a kingdom where people will be willing to be exposed. Where maybe for the first time you can be honest about one thing, your dishonesty. And you can come before him and say, I know, God, that I'm not the person I ought to be. And my mind is racing through reasons why I have failed this past week, why I've done things that harm other people and I make it permissible. My mind has calculated out all kinds of reasons why this is justifiable. And the same way these people justified breaking oaths by the hair on the head or by the, by the temple or by the earth. I know that I am a person who's deceived. And the only honest statement I will, the first real and true honest statement I can ever make is to come before my creator and say, I'm not the person I was created to be and I know it. I know it. Will you forgive me? And it's in this very moment that you hear these great words of life. As you sit there exposed and you stop hiding, you stop using your words for self-promotion and self-protection, as you sit there exposed, it's the first time you hear true words of life, true words of love. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. It is completely finished in Christ. Hope belongs to you because of Christ. This is the good news that we celebrate every week. And what Jesus is saying is that his people hear those words spoken over him, and it transforms them. It transforms them. They become people who become committed radically to the truth, who can say hard things even at risk of relationship because they know the truth is of the utmost importance. They know that the more you disconnect from the truth, the more you start living in something like a psychosis. And yet the more you come in line with the truth, the more you're honest with yourself, and the more you're honest with people around you, the more you start to taste and feel what it truly means to be alive, to be human. You realize that being trapped in that, that state of deception, that things aren't as bad as you're saying they are, 
that you will give account to nobody. That, that is like a psychosis. That's like, like having gone psycho. And you realize the first time you're honest with yourself and you're honest before God and you expose yourself to God, you realize this is what it feels like to be alive. And you become a person in that new life who then becomes committed to being people of the truth. Now listen, time doesn't permit me to ask hard questions about what it means to be people committed to the truth. Could a Christian be a prime minister during question period where your whole job is to basically not answer any question and send a bunch of misdirecting answers? I don't know. It'd be very hard. I'm convinced you could be. But it's going to be complicated in this world. But what I do know is this, is that the good news of the gospel is this. Christians become people who become honest with themselves, who stop the game of self-deception. They're honest before God, and they're honest with themselves. And in being honest, they find life. They find, this is what it feels like to have my heart beat again. This is what it feels like to be truly human, to breathe, to get air deep in my lungs. And that experience of coming alive because of the forgiveness, because of the word spoken on the cross over you in Christ, then becomes for you the path with which you walk in front of others. This is the kingdom our Lord has called us to. Let's walk in it. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that not a word that you've given to us is a lie. We thank you that you bound yourself by oath to yourself. That you would be to us a God for us. Father, some of us are so trapped in a world of self-deception that we can't even come to terms with how bad the situation is. Would you send your spirit upon us to open our eyes to the self-deception and would you allow us to say the first truthful word we've ever said to be honest with you about the state that we're in? And by your spirit, would you implant deep in our hearts the hope of the gospel that in your son our sins are forgiven? Help us to be a people who believe this and show evidence of believing it by being truthful in all our interactions. Even this week, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.